This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. Uh, but let me say welcome to Nags Head Church. Uh, for you who are our guests, we're glad you're here and wherever you've come from, thanks for finding us and uh, joining with us this morning. We're in a series here that we're teaching called Revolution, Resolution Revolution that we started the first part of the year, and it's about, some, about three different declarations that we as a church are, are giving to God and saying to God this year. The first one began with us talking about it's not about me, and we looked at Galatians 2.20 and scriptures that tell us we as Christians are to live Jesus' life. We're allowed to, to, to allow him to live his life in and through us and, and to elevate him as we sang about this morning. Right now, we're in the second of those declarations. We're going to wrap that one up today. Does anyone, can anybody remember what that declaration is? Y'all aren't any better than nine o'clock. So I shouldn't have said that because, uh, yeah, you're really not. You just, you just look more awake. All right. Uh, The lights are on, but nobody's home. Maybe I'm not sure what it is. Renew me, Lord, is what we're saying right now. And then the third declaration that will begin next Sunday says, whatever it takes. And we're going to take that declaration and that will take us up to uh, Easter Sunday, which is April the 8th. And we've got a couple things in between uh, that we're going to mix in with that as well. So we're glad that you're here. Um, I want you to take your Bible and uh, find a Bible and maybe it's in the chair. Get a Bible and turn to 2 Kings chapter 23. When you found 2 Kings chapter 23 in your Bible, I want you to take that blue pamphlet that you got that was on your seat that you're so curious about, and I want you to put it in your Bible at 2 Kings chapter 23, and I want you to close it for right now. Will you do that? And uh, just kind of hang on there, and uh, as we, um, we get ready to talk about, about more of the story uh, of Josiah. Uh, Josiah was a young king of Judah. He was in the line of many, many kings. He became king, remember, when he was eight years old. And this story in chapter 20, that begins in chapter 22, starts when he is 26. He's been king for, for 18 years. The kings that preceded him, his dad, his granddad, were ungodly men. However, his grandfather, Manasseh, he, toward the end of his life, he did turn back to God and try to enact some changes in his kingdom. But it was kind of like too little too late because as soon as he died and his son Ammon took over, they went back to their old ways. In fact, they went so far away from God during Ammon's reign. You remember what it said there in chapter 21? The end of chapter 21 said they had abandoned God as a people, left God behind. And what they had done in abandoning God, you know, when you abandon God, there's a void in your life. If you know Christ and you walk away from him, that leaves an empty place in your life. And some of you came to Christ because you already had an empty place and he filled that. But when they they abandoned him, what they had begun to do was to allow the pagan gods of the nations around them, the Ammonites and the Edomites and and all those ites, the Hittites, they they, they allowed those pagan gods that they worship, by pagan means they're not worshiping the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, Creator God, Jehovah, any other God by any other name is pagan. And they were worshiping these pagan gods in which... You know, they had idols that represented these gods, and they had altars where they sacrificed to these gods, and they put these idols and these altars all over the country, including in the city of Jerusalem, even going so far to erect these idols in the temple itself. An amazing thing. We'll see they even went farther than that, right inside the temple today in this chapter. They had turned to idolatry. The kings participated in the idolatry themselves, even to the extent of sacrificing their own children on the altar of the god Molech. And we'll see that in chapter 23 again. 
What a horrible, horrible worship. What a horrible God that must have been, Moloch. This nation that had agreed way back in its history, a covenant with God that said, you, Jehovah, you will be our God and we will be your people forever. It started with Abraham. Do you remember that covenant? Now they had backtracked out of that contract, that agreement, and no longer was he their God. No longer were they his people. God had promised them in the word of God that should they do this, abandon him, he would take everything away from them. You'll lose it all. Not only will you lose it all, but I will see to it that another kingdom comes in, destroys the city of Jerusalem, and takes you captive back to their kingdom where you will live until you've learned your lesson. Josiah comes along, and he's different, however, from his father and his grandfather. Like David, Josiah is a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect, but he had a passion from God from the time he was a little guy, apparently. Somebody had stepped in and filled that void in his life when his dad died. Maybe it was the prophet Zephaniah. Stepped in and said, Let me, I'm going to teach you about God, the God of our fathers that our nation has forgotten. I don't want you to lose sight of who he is. I want you to know him. And Josiah grew up with this passion for God. When he's 26, the story began in chapter 22 about the change that he began to begin in the nation of Judah. He began to repair and restore the temple, this building that his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Solomon had built many, many years before as the house of God. The place of worship had been in disrepair, become neglected over the years. And not only that, foreign idols had been placed in the temple. And, and he began to restore the temple. And in the process of restoring the temple, they had some money that they had been collecting. And they gave the money to the contractors and said, look, fix it all up. Fix what's broken. Repair it. Get it back in, in, in the order that glorifies God. And in the process, they discovered a scroll that had been missing for who knows how long, how many generations, how many years, a copy of the Word of God, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the books that Moses wrote, the law is what they called them. They found that scroll. It should have been in the Holy of Holies, the holiest place right beside the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God said to keep it. Somebody had moved it. Obviously, one of the high priests, because only the high priest could go in there, had taken it out. For whatever reason, we don't know. We can only guess that he did not have good motives in mind. And it was put away somewhere in the basement, in an attic, somewhere in a box, in a closet. It had disappeared. And no one had heard the word of God for a long, long, long time. Nobody had heard the Pentateuch, the law, read. Well, they found it. And they brought it back to the king and said, man, you won't believe what we just found. We have found the missing word of God. And this was a new revelation, and as it were. And, and, and it was read to the king, I guess, from the Genesis chapter 1 to the end of Deuteronomy. And as they get to the end of Deuteronomy in this reading, I believe it's in chapter 28. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. There were verses that said, and God says, and if you break this covenant, if you disobey me, if you abandon me, here's what will happen. I will curse this, and I will curse that, and I will curse the other. And he pronounced all these things that would be ruined, their land, their crop their children, their livelihood, everything would be ruined and someone would come in and carry them off captive. And as Josiah, this young 26-year-old king, he hears this, he realizes, I'm the king. I'm at the top of the heap. I'm the leader of this kingdom and it's up to me to make things different if they're going to be different. And he broke down as he heard this. He, in despair, remember last week, it says he ripped his clothing and he wept. 
He was so sorry for what his kingdom had become. He had never heard this before, this word of God, and it began to change him. I was thinking just the other day as I'm going rehashing this story of Josiah over and over in my mind and, and reading it again and again, I was thinking the other day of Christians that I know who neglect personal times of worship. There's no time during the week when they just all of a sudden say, God, I want to worship and praise you. Maybe they do it with music, maybe they don't, but just worship and lift up the name of the Lord in their own personal private times. They neglect that. And, and, and they may come to church every Sunday. They may be sitting here this morning, but Christians who will come, and, and even in church, they never connect with God in worship. It's just a ritual. It's just running through the motions. It doesn't grip their hearts and change them. And I know Christians like that. I thought of believers that I know who grew up maybe in church and in Sunday school, vacation Bible school, and they learned all the Bible stories, and they can, they can tell you, every, they can name every book of the Bible in order, backwards and forwards. They can sing the songs, Old Testament, New Testament, get it all down. They got a lot of verses memorized. But their lives have drifted away from God, and they don't want to hear God's word anymore. In fact, when you go to them and say, but look, 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 listen, here's, here's what the Bible says. You know, I don't want to hear it. I've been told that. By people who know God and know his word, I'm not interested in that. Why? Because I know if I hear it, I'm going to be responsible to do what it says. And it may bring about some change in my life that, frankly, right now, I'm not interested in. And I think about those Christians that no longer worship. Their worship is torn down. Their love of the word of God and their, and their respect for it and their obedience to it. I've, I've, you know, there's, there are other kinds of captivity than being taken away to a foreign country. I know a lot of believers right now who are in their own personal captivity because of what they've done. Well, so Josiah hears the word. It causes him to be sorrowful. He sends representatives, remember last Sunday, to the prophetess Huldah, who tried, uh, he said, I want you to, I want to hear from God directly. Please tell me what God's saying. And God spoke through this, through this, this woman and, and said, God said, look, I, I am going to follow through on, the cur- through on the curses that I promised. God says, that's going to happen. Why? Because God, t- God doesn't talk just to hear himself speak. When God speaks, he speaks truth. God says, I will honor my word above my name. God said, those things are going to happen. Those curses are going to come. But Josiah, because you have humbled yourself, Because you have been sorry, because you have sought my truth, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to extend a time of grace and mercy in your life. It's not going to happen during your lifetime. I'm going to wait until after you die. And historically, that's exactly what happened. Four years after he died, Nebuchadnezzar came down from Babylon, destroyed Jerusalem, and took captive many, many of the people. But God gave him this time of of grace, if you will. And that brings us to chapter 23. So far, we've seen in this story... Um, beginning in chapter 22, the steps, what we call the steps of, of renewal. We've seen regeneration as a new king, a new passion for God comes along. The restoration of worship as they repaired the temple. The revelation of discovering God's word and then repentance that we saw last Sunday as in sorrow. Jo- Josiah said, we've got to find a way to turn this around. And now knowing that there was a grace period, by the way, He's 26 years old. He doesn't know how long this grace period is going to be. Do you know how long you're going to live, by the way? None of us do. None of us do. 
He was 26 years old. He died at 38 or 39. I can't remember which. Just another 13 years or so. That's all that he had left. He didn't know that. But he said, I'm going to make my life count. God's given us a grace period and it starts today. I'm not going to wait till tomorrow. It begins right now. And that brings us to this last step of renewal, which is reformation. Listen, when God's word truly pierces our hearts as it had done in Josiah's heart, it is not enough to say, oh, God, I'm sorry. It's not enough to say, I'm sorry. Repentance, what is repentance? That's what happened in his life. Repentance is a change of mind that always results in a change of behavior. Did you get that? Repentance is a change of mind that always results in a change in my life. You know, if somebody apologizes to you for hurting you in some way and you say, you know, I forgive you. And then the next day they turn around and do the exact same thing to you. Did they really repent? No. They gave lip service. They, maybe they were sorry they got caught. But were they truly sorry? Probably not. If there's no life change, there's no reformation. Sorry doesn't just, just doesn't get it, does it? No. Now, what I want to do for a few minutes is I'm going to read through the first 18 verses of chapter 23. So you can open your Bible back up to where that blue paper is. Put the blue paper in the back of your Bible right now. We're not going to look at it yet. And we're going to read through some verses. And I'm going to kind of read through them and make a few comments about them to get this story. And then we'll make some applications after that. Chapter 23, 2 Kings. So the king sent messengers... And they gathered to him all the elders of Jerusalem. The elders of Jerusalem would have been, in their culture, would have been the equivalent of our town council. Those who kind of looked over each town, each village, those who sat at the gate would be the expression in their day and, and actually were judges. And if you had an issue, you had a problem with your neighbor, whatever it might be, you came to the elders who sat at the gate and you say, hey, Kind of tell us what we need to do here. Who's right, who's wrong, who needs to pay, who doesn't need to pay, whatever it might be. They, they, they served in that, that manner. They were the looked up to, respected, qualified leaders of each town and village. The elders, he said, bring all the elders of Jerusalem, the city, Judea or Judah, the, the nation around them. And then the king went to the Lord's temple with all the men of Judah All the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as well as the priests and prophets, all the people from the youngest to the oldest. A huge crowd, the entire population of the city of Jerusalem. He didn't get the entire population of the country around them. Judah, there just wasn't room. So he said, I want the men. I want the spiritual heads of each home to be here to see what's going to happen and hear what's going to happen today. So he got the men. He got the priests, the religious leaders. He got the prophets, the men, the women who spoke for God. All of them. And as they listened, he read all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. Now, when it says he read all the words, I'm not sure if that means he started with Genesis 1-1 and went to the end of Deuteronomy. I kind of don't think so, because that would have taken a long, you know, you can imagine, especially when you get, you get into Leviticus and, and Numbers, it really drags on, kind of gets hard to read some of that stuff. I don't know if they read it all. If he did, they must have contracted with a lot of porta potties there that day because they would have been standing outside the temple for a long, long time. I don't think he did that. I think he highlighted some things, and especially he highlighted those verses that had gripped his heart at the end of Deuteronomy and said, God said, if you don't do these things, here's what happens. And he read those things to the people. 
Verse 3, next the king stood by the pillar there at the front of the temple and made a covenant personally. He makes this agreement, this promise, this contract with God in the presence of the Lord. What was the covenant? To follow the Lord and to keep his commandments, his decrees, and his statutes with all his mind and with all his heart. He had read those verses, that phrase before in the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. He read that and he said, God, that's what I'm going to do. And to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And I love this next part. And all the people agreed to the covenant. The whole population said, we're with you, King Josiah. That means some changes have to take place, doesn't it? The changes begin right away. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second rank, and the doorkeepers. But who were those? Hilkiah was the high priest. He was the guy that went into the Holy of Holies and, and, and offered the one time a year sacrifice for the atonement of their sins. The priests were descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. That's the only people who could be priests. But Moses and Aaron were were part of the family of Levi, the tribe of Levi in the Jewish culture. And the other people in the tribe of Levi who were not priests were still part of this family. And they were the, what's called here, the doorkeepers or or the gatekeepers of the Lord's house. They were the Levites whose job it was to look out for the temple. He said, you guys go in there and you bring out all the articles made for Baal at Asherah and the whole heavenly These false gods that they had been worshiping. Baal, God of the Philistines, God of the surrounding, Asherah, another one of their gods, male and female gods, by the way. And all the heavenly hosts, they've been worshiping the stars and the planets, you know, horoscope kind of stuff. They've been into that. He said, you get rid of all that stuff, get it out of there. And verse, uh, end of verse four, he burned them outside Jerusalem, these idols in the fields of the Kidron, which is a valley. And he carried their ashes to Bethel. Then he did away with the idolatrous priests, the ones that the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense at the high places in the cities of Judah and in the areas surrounding Jerusalem. These priests who were were supposed to be priests of God, who were sons of, of Aaron, but yet they had been appointed by the king to oversee the worship of these pagan gods. Not anymore. They had burned This is the end of verse five. They had burned incense to Baal and to the sun, moon, constellations, and the whole heavenly host. He brought out the Asherah pole from the Lord's temple, this large idol that was in in the temple, to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem. He burned it in the Kidron Valley, beat it to dust, and threw its dust on the graves of the common people, those who had worshiped it. He also tore down the houses of the male shrine prostitutes that were in the temple. They had even brought in male prostitutes where men could come in and commit sexual acts in the temple. That's what they were doing. You want to see how far they've gone in which the women were weaving tapestries for Asherah. The women weren't left out. They were in there making these beautiful tapestries for gods that don't even exist. Amazing. Then Josiah, verse 8, brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and he defiled the high places from Geba to Beersheba, where the priests had burned incense. When he says they defile these places, it means that he, in their custom day, he made them unusable. They were no longer fit as altars, no longer fit to be used anymore. 
He tore down the high places of the gates at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, on the left at the city gate. The priests of the high places, however, did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem. Instead, they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priests. What is that about? Here's what happened there. He took these priests that were supposed to be priests serving God and leading the people in worship of God. They were descended from Aaron and the priestly family, but they were doing these other gods. They were worshiping and doing sacrifices to these other gods. And he said, you guys are no longer qualified to serve in the temple and offer sacrifices ever again. Now, you still get to eat with the other priests. You're still part of the family, but you are disqualified from your priestly duties. It was an act of discipline upon them. Verse 10, he he defiled Trophith, which is in the valley of Hinnom, so that no one could make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Moloch. Moloch was the God where to worship him, you brought a child, a baby, and placed that child on this altar where that child was burned to death. They were slaughtering the innocent. They were killing their own children in God's kingdom to worship these false gods. He said, we're we're destroying that idol. He did away with the horses, that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They had been in the entrance of the Lord's temple and the precinct by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the court official, and he burned up the chariots of the sun. The king tore down the altars that were on the roof. Ahaz's upper chamber that the kings of Judah had made. They, they made it uh, up on the palace roof. They had this altar for the kings where they could worship these false gods. The altars that Manasseh had made in the two courtyards of the Lord's temple, and then he smashed them there and threw their dust into the Kidron Valley. The king also defiled the high places that were across from Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Destruction. Interesting name here. The Mount, it's called the Mount of Destruction here. Do you know what that mount was? It was the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. It's a place where Jesus would go and pray the night before he was crucified. place where Jesus would teach. And here, they're using it to worship false gods. All right, where are we? Verse 13? Verse 14? Well, let's finish 13, because there's an interesting piece there. He, he, this mount of destruction, now get this, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the detestable god of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Those were these foreign countries, these countries that surrounded them, and these were their gods. Now notice, though, who built these idols? Who built these altars? Who built them? Solomon. You know, Solomon is called the wisest man who ever lived. Solomon was the son of David who was given the incredible privilege of building the temple. Solomon wrote, much of the book of Proverbs. Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon wrote the book of the Song of Solomon in our Bible. Great wise man. But there was one area in Solomon's life where he was really stupid. You know where that area was? Thank you very much. Yeah, a lot of guys are stupid there, aren't they? And vice versa, ladies. And God had said to them, do not marry women of the Gentile nations, the pagan nations around you, because when you do, they will bring their worship of, this false, of these false gods into your home and bring you down. Now, not only would he have a problem, he had a big problem because the Bible says he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. 
<laughs> Some men will look at him and go, dude, you got it all. But he didn't because they corrupted him in his faith toward God. And he built Solomon, built these altars. Verse 14, he, he, Josiah, broke the sacred pillars into pieces, cut down the Asherah poles, and then filled their places with human bones. He even tore down the altar at Bethel and the high place that Jeroboam, again, one of the kings, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin, had made. And when he, then he burned the high place. He crushed it to dust. He burned the Asherah, that pole, that, that idol. As Solomon, tur- excuse me, as Josiah turned, he saw tombs there on the mountain. And he sent someone to take the bones out of the tombs and he burned them on the altar. Most people think those tombs contain the bones of the priests who had led the worship on those altars. He defiled it, that altar, according to the word of God, proclaimed by the man of God who proclaimed these things. We're going to talk about who is that. And then he said, what is this monument that I see? There's a monument there. Well, what is this about? The men of the city told him, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things that you have done to the altar at Bethel. Make a note somewhere. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, there's the story of King Jeroboam and him worshiping, giving sacrifices at this altar. And this, this prophet, this man of God from Judah shows up. And right there in the king's face, he says, you're defiling, uh, you're, you're, you're disobeying God. You shouldn't be doing this. God condemns that. What you're doing, and it's wrong, wrong, wrong. And not only that, let me tell you what's going to happen. And he spoke a prophecy that would be fulfilled with Josiah 290 years later. And he said, here's what's going to happen. God's going to raise up a king named Josiah. What an amazing prophecy. Not only say he's going to come and tear these altars down, but he even told his name. He's going to do that. And it's, the story's great because King Jeroboam, he's mad. He's ticked off. This, this preacher's come and showed up the king and told the king he's doing wrong. And he points at him and he tells his, his uh, people, arrest him. Take this. And, and as he does, the Bible says his hand withered, crippled, as he pointed at the prophet. That was a prophet who was memorialized here by this monument. So Josiah said, verse 18, let him rest. Don't let anyone disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Josiah, another prophet. Josiah also removed all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria. They got to the end of their boundaries, the the borders of Judah, and they said, hey, why stop here? And so they moved on into Samaria and continued the destruction of these idols. Verse 20, he he slaughtered on the altars all the priests of the high places who were there, and he burned human bones on the altar. Then he returned to Jerusalem. By the way, if you drop down to verse 24, in addition, Josiah removed the mediums, the spiritists, the household idols, the images, and all the detestable things that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, do you get the idea, as we read through that, that Josiah was pretty serious about this? He wasn't going to let this lay. He wasn't going to just put it off. He was going to get busy. And he said, if I'm really, really sorry, i got to do something about it. This was no half-hearted effort. This wasn't a quick dusting. This was a thorough house cleaning throughout the nation of Judah. So what are some things that we can learn and apply 
about Reformation from this story. Very quickly, we're going on a fast ride, so be ready to write some things down and hopefully some things stick. Number one, Reformation is birthed by a holy discontent. A holy discontent. A righteous being upset about things. Josiah could have said, well, you know what? We've read God's thing, and God said he's still going to do this, and he's still going to curse, and he's still going to bring the captivity. And so one way or another, why go through all this effort to change now if it's just going to happen anyway? But he didn't. He realized that the spiritual lives of his nation were at stake, and something had to give, and Something had to bring change, and if they were going to be taken captive someday, at least they would be taken captive knowing who their God was and that they could trust in him. He knew from God's own words that God is a God of mercy and God's a God of forgiveness, but they had to act, and they had to act as a nation. And that action started with him as king. You know, last week we talked about how the scars, scars that remain after we commit sin and And when we live in disobedience to the Lord, even though we may repent and find forgiveness of him, we're still likely to live with consequences of our actions for years to come. Well, then why bother? I mean, if that's the way it's going to be. Well, let me ask you a question. Would you rather try and live through the consequences with him and with his presence and with his love and strength or or without it? You want to go it alone? Do you want to be mad at God for what you didn't do and be bitter? Or do you want to know that no matter how dark the valley, your shepherd will be there to lead you through it? I don't know about you, but I opt for the second option. I want to go with God. Even though I'm going through some things that that are not good and not pleasant to me, I want to know God's there with me in the darkest time. When we really want change and are willing to do what's necessary to turn around and go new directions then the wheels of reformation begin turning. But it started in this story with one man. Historically, it's done that so often. Probably the biggest period of reformation came when one guy, one Catholic monk, risked his life to say, you know what, things have got to change and change now. And he began to study God's word, read God's word, and discovered that salvation was by grace through faith, not by indulgences, paying money to the church. And this fellow, this monk, by the name of Martin Luther, wrote up a list of 99 things that he saw wrong in the religion of the church at the time. And he nailed that list of 99 things to the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany, and the Protestant Reformation erupted. You see, one person who cries, and I hope that one person is you this morning, one person who truly, genuinely cries out to God, renew me, Lord, And then another person comes along and says, puts his arm, her arm around you and says, me too, God, renew us. And it grows. Josiah assembled all the people to hear God's law for themselves, not just the elders and the priests and the prophets, everybody. And certainly as these people for the very first time likely in their lives heard the word of God, the law read, it did the same, had the same impact on them as it had on Josiah and they were sorry and they repented. They were like the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. They were like the crowd on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 who when they heard the word of God wanted to know right then, right now, God, is salvation possible for me? 
This would take the action of the whole congregation. He couldn't do this by himself. The evidences of sin, the idols, the altars were everywhere in the nation. So your next point is very simply, renewal is powerful when it includes us all. Now, take out your blue paper, your blue little pamphlet. Now's the time you've been waiting for all morning. Take this out for a second, just for momentarily. 40 Days of Renewal begins this Wednesday. We're doing a church-wide focus this week, something that we just kind of came up with, and and, uh, we're asking God to bless it. We believe God wants us in his word. We believe God wants us to be a people of prayer. We've learned this from Josiah. So beginning this Wednesday, the 29th, all the way through Easter Sunday, that's 40 days, and what you have on the inside, if you open it up, you'll see you have a, a, a daily Bible reading guide there. Begins Wednesday, day one, with the first chapter of Matthew. And then every day you've got a chapter from the Bible, from the Gospels to read. And in that 40 days, you will go chronologically from his beginning to his ascension, or his time on earth really prior to that, to his ascension, the life of Jesus in order as it happened, using mostly the Gospels of Mark and John. One chapter a day. And we'll all be reading the same chapter Every day, and we'll all be praying every day for renewal. We'll all be asking ourselves as we read this life of Jesus what is this part of Jesus' story? Tell me about me, about my life, and where I need renewal. How do my actions, my attitudes compare with Jesus? Do I treat others like Jesus did? Your connection group may want to bring your readings into your group. You may do this individually, you may do this as a family together. We've given you some ideas for that. But please understand, here's the deal. I believe God wants to renew us. I don't think God just wants to renew me. I think he wants to renew us all. And so we're bringing the whole congregation into this. He wants us all to be renewed. Imagine what would happen at Nags Head Church if we saw the Spirit of God bring renewal, reformation to us all. That'd be great. But what has to happen? The next point in this story. Reformation is a return to glorifying God alone in our lives. See, as they went throughout the country, they found these altars and these idols everywhere. What is an idol? An idol is anything or anyone that I worship other than God. That's a simple definition. Anything or anyone I worship other than God. Now, we would, some of us are scratching our heads saying, yeah, but this is 21st century America. This is not some third world country where they've got little shrines all over the place and little statues and all that kind of thing where they burn incense and what have you. This is, man, this is, this is not the place for that, is it? It sounds a bit peculiar to talk about idols because we think of wooden engraven statues and images and people in other cultures bow down before. We don't do that here, not in 21st century America. Do we? Anything, anyone that I worship other than God. You see, God and his law, and later Jesus would repeat it, define worship as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. So anything then or anyone that pulls me away from living out that love of God, it's more than just saying words. Just like, I can say I'm sorry, but it may just be words. I can say I love God, but 
has to show in my actions. Anything that pulls me away from the love of God, anything, anyone that gets my devotion before God, how do I know if I have idols in my life? Two ways, two things to look at. Number one, how do I spend my time? You devote your time to something you really, that really matters to you. Right? How do I spend my time? Secondly, how do I spend my money? Because we invest money in things that are really, really important to us as well. And the Bible teaches us, especially when you get into the New Testament, that Christ is, when Christ is Lord of my life, I recognize that my whole life is his, that he wants to live his life through me. Do you know what the word Lord means? It means owner. It means the one who has control. And if you're a Christian, that means he is supposed to own you. He's bought you with a price, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Peter said the same thing. The price was far greater than, than any diamonds or rubies or precious stones. It was the blood of Jesus. And he owns us. He's purchased us. And since he does, all of my time then and all of my resources belong to who? The one who owns me. Okay, Rick, are you saying... Man, are you going to tell us that we need to, you know, sell everything that we have and give it to the poor or give it to the church and become a monk in a monastery somewhere and sit around and read the Bible and pray and chant things all day long? Is that what you're saying? And I I don't think so. I mean, I don't, you know, I read the Bible. I don't see anybody, even the Bible, going to that kind of extreme. What do you mean then? Once I come to the realization that all I have is Christ's, everything I have is Jesus, then I become willing to surrender my will over my time, my will over my stuff to him. And those things, or even those people in my life that I hold on to too too tightly and I allow to take priority in my life, and because I do, then I don't have time to serve, I don't have time to give, I don't have resources to give because of all everything else in my life. Those things become my idols. Those are what I worship more than God. You see, for most of us, reformation may mean changing my priorities. You may not have to go around your yard and around your house and find stuff and burn it and grind it up and throw it into the creek. It may mean changing your priorities. Let me make a couple of suggestions about that. Just things that I, I, I see in my life and life of other people. For example, if I spend hours on Facebook, but at the end of the day I've had no time to pray, I've had no time to read or study God's word, guess what I've discovered in my life? An idol. Do you understand what I'm saying? That can be an idol. If if my business demands prevent me from gathering with God's people for worship, I just I can't go. I can't be there for fellowship. My business, my job leaves me no time to serve in ministry. Guess what? I have a problem with in my life. Idolatry. 
So I may have to choose in my life of giving something up because it's become an idol in my life. I may have to choose between my kids' soccer team schedule that ignores Christians and ignores that it's Sunday and assembling together time with other believers. And I may have to say, we're destroying that idol. Don't go out and kill your kids. That's not what I'm saying. But you may have to change your priorities in life. I don't know any kid that because he's been forbidden to play sports on Sunday grew up a criminal because of that. I just don't. I may have to sell something that right now I'm paying for and because of I'm making that payment, I can't, I look at my bank account and say, but I don't have anything left over, God, to give you. And that's become an idol. Don't think, by the way, that you say, Rick, those might be hard things to do. Well, do you think this was easy for Judah to go around and do this? These, these idols, these statues, these altars were part of their lifestyle for generations. For many of these people, they had put their trust in these gods, thinking this is going to give me somehow eternal life. But when it dawned on them how seriously far their lifestyles had taken them away from their devotion to the one true God, they had to do the difficult thing. So not only is Reformation changing my priorities for you, it may mean ridding my life of idols. Church, as we seek renewal, as we read the word of God, as we pray, God's going to show us through his word, each and every one of us, me, our pastors, our staff, our leaders, all of us, every one of us who is willing, he's going to show us just what these idols are in our lives. And my hope and my prayer is that we as a church, we as individuals, we as families will be willing to refocus our priorities or even rid idols from our lives. One more step completed their renewal. Verses 21 to 23, that one step is rejoicing. Rejoicing. When all this was done, the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover of your Lord, of the Lord your God as written in the book of the covenant. No such Passover has ever been kept from the time of the judges who judged Israel through the entire time of the kings of Israel and Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was observed to the Lord in Jerusalem. What happened? Something that had no doubt been neglected, like the temple was Passover. It had been maybe forgotten. Passover was a celebration, an annual reminder of what God had done to free them from Egypt and slavery. It was a family meal surrounded by a national festival. Josiah simply said, Passover is back. Let us have the biggest and best Passover party ever. You see, ridding our lives of the things that take us away from worship and from being the people of God When we get rid of those things in our lives, all of a sudden, you know what we begin to discover in our life? That renewal is a time of refreshment. It's a time of rejoicing. It's a time when we can once again be free to celebrate him and who he is in our lives. It wasn't easy to get there, but once they were there and renewed, they were again free to rejoice. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, these are not easy things that we're talking about today. But as you speak into our hearts and to our lives and reveal to us 
maybe our own personal idols, I pray and I hope and I trust that we'd be honest enough, sincere enough to you, willing for renewal in our lives to say, God, I'm willing to rid myself of these things and take the actions that lead to reformation and then rejoicing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.